0: Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron. The Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, September 2nd, we're studying Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 1 to 14. Moses describes how Israel will care for the priests and the Levites who have no inheritance of land, and he also warns Israel against practicing the abominations of the nations they are dispossessing. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lees Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. It's an honor to be in God's Word with you today. As we start Deuteronomy 18 this morning, Pastor Andrews, give us some context. What should we know about Deuteronomy and what Moses has been saying leading up to this point?
1: Well, we're about halfway through the book at this point, but the book of Deuteronomy as a whole, uh, time-wise, we're looking at when the Israelites have been wandering for 40 years through the wilderness, uh, having left Egypt, but not making it to the promised land yet. Now they're close. Now they're getting ready to enter the promised land and really the book ends up being mostly moses speaking Uh, i think if i'm not mistaken he begins speaking in this section in chapter five and doesn't stop until the end of chapter 26. Um, just one long sermon text as he delivers god's word god's law to god's holy people and they're supposed to be the nation of the lord and so here is how you are to live as the people of God, that's the, the emphasis and the drive of the book. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, if the if the words of Moses were put in a particular color of print, like, you know, yeah, you know, some Bibles will put the words of Jesus in red. If you put the words of Moses in green, say, most of Deuteronomy would be green it's it's a lot of moses talking and that's okay you're right he's been talking for an extended period of time here we're in the middle of what many call the second sermon the primary chunk of deuteronomy starting in chapter 5 going all the way through chapter 26 a big chunk of text in which the, moses is speaking to the people giving them instructions for living in the promised land uh, one one c- question on context that i'm just curious if you have any thoughts about we we saw at the end of chapter 16 Moses placed a really strong emphasis on justice, not perverting justice, not showing partiality, following, pursuing justice in the promised land. And we saw that in chapter 17 play itself out in a number of ways in the matter of avoiding idolatry, in the matter of priests and judges making decisions, and even in laws for kings who are to come, that justice is a a very particular concern for the Lord. As I'm reading chapter 18, I see some shift in topic here, but I'm wondering just on your reflection and reading of it in preparation for our conversation, do you see justice coming into play in chapter 18 still? Is there a relation, do you think, or are we shifting a little bit here?
1: We get a feel like that for the book as a whole, don't we? That it feels like there are these abrupt shifts and transitions from one topic to another, but there, there can be some overlap in that. So justice, being just, making sure that, and normally we would talk about that as making sure that people who have been wronged are being cared for. But I mean, being just is doing what is right. And so the connection perhaps for chapter 18 to follow up on that is that God's people are supposed to care for They're priests. They're supposed to care for the Levites, those who are going to handle the Word of God, those who are going to minister on their behalf in the presence of the Lord for them, that their sins are forgiven, that their prayers are delivered, and so forth with those offerings. And so caring for them is just and right to do in the land. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a helpful connection. We, we also have said
0: the past two episodes how justice is intimately connected with what God says, that to do justice is to listen and follow God's word. And so... That broad understanding of justice certainly continues as the Lord speaks his word for his people to follow and do in the land. Another helpful comment that I read from Professor Harstad that kind of, I think, helps tie a little bit of this chapter to to chapter 17. He mentions the the three great offices among the people of Israel— begin to show up in the previous chapter. At the end of chapter 16, you see kings. Today, you and I get to talk particularly about priests, and we get an introduction to a part that's going to launch us into prophets as well. And so you you see those three great offices for the people of Israel, all coming to fulfillment in Jesus, of course. Kings, and today we get priests, and we start to maybe think about prophets, at least in the opposite of what prophets are to be. So just some contextual thoughts as we start to look here in deuteronomy 18 let's go ahead and read the text we're starting in verse 1 of the chapter "The the levitical priests all the tribe of levi shall have no portion or inheritance with israel they shall eat the lord's food offerings as their inheritance they shall have no inheritance among their brothers the lord is their inheritance as he promised them and this shall be the priests due from the people From those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. And if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all Israel, where he lives, And he may come when he desires, to the place that the Lord will choose, and ministers in the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have equal portions to eat, besides what he receives from the sale of his patrimony. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations." There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination, or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. That's our text for today. That's Deuteronomy 18, verses 1 to 14. Pastor Andrews, we get started. Moses begins to tell us about, he says, the Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi who is he talking about here? Give us some old Testament background on the Levitical priests and all the tribe of Levi.
1: So we're going to meet Levi in the scriptures for the first time back. in I believe it's Genesis 30. He is one of the children, one of the sons born to Jacob, the patriarch. And so Jacob's going to have the 12 sons who become the nation of Israel. He's third born. So Leah is his, his mother. And as Levi grows up, there's an incident that occurs that gets him removed from receiving the family inheritance, the the birthright, and also the family blessing. And he's not the first to actually have that happen. So Reuben's firstborn, he gets that removed from him because he he jumps ahead a little bit in Genesis 35 and, and commits an affair with his father's concubine. And so dad skips him. And so now you'd come to the secondborn. And Simeon and Levi is the third. Simeon and Levi together are going to to get in trouble with their father. So in Genesis 34, um, Jacob's son, Dinah, is raped by a a man named Shechem. And now Shechem lives in the city of Shechem. Which one's named after which one, I'm not sure. Um, But Shechem and his father come before Jacob and the brothers and ask that Dinah would be given to Shechem in marriage because he loves her. And the brothers come up with a scheme that they can't unite their families together because the, the Shechemites are not circumcised. So you circumcise yourselves, and it sounds good to us. If, you're, if all your men are circumcised, we can marry together. Uh, we'll give our daughters to you, you give your daughters to us, and so forth. They'd become one people. Well, on the third day after the men of Shechem had been circumcised— Simeon and Levi take up their swords, and they go through the city, and they kill every one of the men of Shechem. And when you come to the Genesis 49, the time when Jacob gives the family blessing to his offspring, he passes over Simeon and Levi because of that violence of theirs. And so the the family inheritance is going to end up actually going all the way down to Joseph through his sons, and the blessing will be spoken ultimately over Judah, who gets to be the one who brings, his line will bring forth our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, the tribe of Levi has lost that position. It's lost that upper status amongst the brothers, and yet now, here, when you get later on in history, they have regained a, a great deal of significance. And when that occurs actually happens in Exodus chapter 32, uh, the the golden calf account. So most of the listeners will, will be familiar with that account that Moses has gone up onto Mount Sinai to speak to the Lord. And while he's there, the people come to Aaron and they ask, well, they demand of him to make them a God that they can follow. And so Aaron takes all their gold jewelry, melts it all down, makes this, sculpts this calf. And it's always humorous the way he tried to defend himself when his brother came down the mountain. And he said, well, I just, I threw all the gold into the fire, out popped this calf. <laughs> Not quite the way it happened, but <laughs> anyway, he even calls this golden calf Yahweh, if I call, recall correctly from that text and so when Moses comes back down the mountain, he sees everything happening, he sees the idolatry, he rebukes the people, he melts down the calf, he takes that dried up uh, gold now at that point, he grinds it down into a powder, puts it in their water, forces the people to drink it. But beyond that, and that's that's one I think most people know, the next part is probably less known, is that Moses then calls out to the people and he says in verse 26 of Exodus 32, who is on Yahweh's side, come to me. And at that point, all the sons of Levi, the, the Levite tribe, they gather to Moses. He commands them to take up their sword and to go throughout the camp and to strike down their brother, their companion, their, their neighbor. And the Levites do. And they strike down that day 3,000 Israelites as part of israel's punishment for the golden calf their idolatry against the lord that rebellion and it's at that point then that moses is going to say today you have been ordained for the service of yahweh each one at the cost of his son and of his brother so that he might bestow upon you a blessing this day that seems to be the spot in scripture where the levites themselves are going to be set apart so the levites are descendants of levi And they become a holy, a set-apart tribe to to the Lord. Now, the priesthood is distinct from that, although the priests also come from Levi's descendants. It will be through Levi's great-grandson Aaron that the priests come. So Moses' brother Aaron, who helped speak to Pharaoh in the Exodus account, he's going to be the first priest. He'll be the high priest over the land of Israel As far as I know, the scripture never tells us why the Lord picked Aaron and his sons after him to fulfill that role in the church. The Lord just did. He made that choice. Yeah,
0: I I think you're right about that. I don't know of a particular reason that he chose Aaron other than Aaron is Moses' brother, but there's no reason that the Lord chose Moses in the sense that it, it says these are the Lord's choices by grace. And so Aaron and his sons, then there's the priesthood, which is within the tribe of Levi. The Levites then are a larger group who also help with things associated with the tabernacle and later the temple. Talk a little bit about the duties, both of priests and Levites.
1: Sure. So the priests, they're they're the, I don't know if I want to call them the holiest, but they are the ones who are going to work closest to the holy things of the Lord. So the things that have been made holy, consecrated, set apart for the Lord and for his service. The tabernacle, as you mentioned, or a few hundred years later, the temple is going to be a part of that, as that is the place where the people will bring their offerings, their sacrifices, and the priests will be the ones who make those sacrifices. Oftentimes, killing the animal, uh, taking the blood, throwing it on the altar, and and those sorts of things. So, the priest's primary duty seems to be that sacrificial system. If the listeners want to learn more about that, uh, Leviticus chapter one through seven is really a good place to go. And we're going to come back to that a couple of times probably in in today's show. They care for the things inside the tabernacle or inside the temple as well. So if you think about the tabernacle, it has two small rooms inside. There's the holy place when you first come in. In the holy place, there is the golden lampstand, which is to give light to the priests so that they can do their work inside. Um, And that is trimmed, the candles cared for, in the morning and again in the evening. There's also the table of the bread of the presence, which has bread on it, has wine on it as well. So a little foreshadowing of the Lord's supper. And then there's the, the altar of incense where they would burn incense. That's where Zechariah is when you come to mm-hmm. Luke in his gospel account. And Zechariah is visited in the temple by the angel uh, because he was, a, he was the priest on duty at the time and making that, that offering. And then you have the the holy of holies, the most holy place where only the high priest would go just the one time a year to make that that sacrifice of atonement for himself and for all the people of Israel, to make them atoned at one with the Lord again, reconciled. Uh, The Levites, on the other hand, are very specifically spoken of in Numbers 18 as being a gift from God to the priest's to help them in their work. So they guard the priest, they guard the tabernacle. When you look at the way the the camp of Israel is set up in those 40 wilderness years of wandering, um, as they pick up camp and they move from place to place, the Levites carry all the parts of the tabernacle. They take it down, they set it up. But as they, they camp, the Levites camp right around it. So no one can accidentally walk into the tabernacle. They're guards at that point. And they continue that even with the, the temple itself in the city of Jerusalem. Hmm. So with the, the Levitical
0: priests, the Levites, the priests being set apart, we you have the historical background, what their duties are, then help us with the connection to this text where these are the ones who have no portion or inheritance with Israel. How do, what does that mean? How does that work itself
1: out? So, as Israel is going to come within the year, right, Uh, we're right here in 1406 at this point, as they're going to come into the promised land and the Lord is going to work ahead of them to drive out their enemies and give this land to them as he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land is going to be apportioned, it's going to be divided up amongst the 12 tribes, except... Levi's not counted in that so 12 sons of Israel 12 tribes but you take Levi out so now you're down to 11 so Joseph is going to be taken and Joseph's name is not among the 12 tribes either instead Joseph is split amongst his two sons Ephraim and Manasseh so Joseph is doubled and Levi is removed the Levites don't receive the the physical inheritance of land so you've got the the other tribes, all having their land allotted to them that then can be passed from generation to generation, they can grow their crops, they can raise livestock, they can provide for themselves through these, these means of labor, the Levites won't be able to do that. And that's the significance being picked up on here early in the text, is that they're going to eat as their inheritance, they're going to eat from Yahweh's food. They'll have Yahweh as their inheritance. He, he himself will be the one providing for them. Hmm.
0: So that's where this first verse talks about that they shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. In verse 2, it, it says more specifically, the Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. Out of those two things, we together the the food, the offerings being their inheritance, and then the Lord himself being their
1: inheritance. So again, with the food, it's the idea of this is how God is going to provide. So hmm. he's going to care for the Levites through a means, as we talk about often in the church today, that the Lord cares for us by means, uh, word and sacrament, as we often will say. And so that food is given, that food is one thing, but it's, it's more than just food. The Levites are receiving as their inheritance God Himself. Um, so He is, He's going to provide for them, yes, but they're called to trust in Him, really called to trust in Him above all things. You don't need land to survive. You don't need to be able to provide for yourself to survive. You have the Lord, and He cares for them, and they endure for well, generations on end. Technically, they're still around today. Hmm. Now, how, how does this
0: come into the church today? I mean, there's no, well, I suppose there could be actual Levites in our churches, right? If the, they can trace their lineage back to Levi in that sense. But in terms of Levites as an office within the church, we don't have that today. So how does this matter of the Lord being the inheritance for the Levites? How, how do we see this same
1: theological concept present among Christians still? I think there's two helpful parallels to pick up on with the New Testament. The the one is for people as a whole, and that's to go with Matthew chapter 6, uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus is preaching. It's verses 25 through 34, where he teaches this idea of of not depending on yourself, not depending on your own works uh, to care for yourself. And he uses the examples, right, of, of the birds and how they don't, they don't sow for themselves. They don't build storehouses for themselves, and yet our Heavenly Father cares for them. And then he uses the example of a plant like a lily and how it is dressed so splendidly, and yet it, it didn't do that for itself. The, the Lord did that. And so as he has cared for these things of his, so he will also care for us. We're taught to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto us. And then the, the other parallel that is a little more specific, as we have you know, the Levitical uh, priesthood being talked about here, there is a pattern to how we've laid out the church in the New Testament era as well, that the majority of our pastors don't have jobs outside of their local congregation. Uh, they have been called into that place. That's where their income comes from. And so their income comes from the people, The people have gathered together, they have founded a church uh, where they wish to hear God's word, where they wish to receive baptism and receive the Lord's Supper, and they want that word and sacrament to always be available to them. And so they call a pastor promising that they will provide for him as he then as steward of those mysteries, those holy things of the Lord, as he provides those things for them. So keeping the pastoral role today is to keep that forgiveness of sins ever before the people of God uh, is really one way to look at that. And so the people, just as the people here of Israel are being called to provide for the Levites because they can't work the field to care for themselves, so today the people of our churches, they provide for you, they provide for me and for our other pastors so that we can we can continue to, to serve before the lord on their behalf
0: i think you see jesus make at least reference to this when he sends his disciples out in the new testament and he he tells them simply to go into the homes that receive them when they proclaim peace and to eat what is set before them you see that same principle at play and certainly saint paul Speaks along these lines when he encourages the churches to support those who proclaim the gospel to them. And again, God's people continue to bless their pastors in this way. Still, Moses gets into some of the nitty gritty here in verses three and four with some of the particulars of what is to be given to the priests and the Levites. He mentions particular parts of oxen and sheep and and first fruits of
1: grain, wine, and oil, first fleeces. Give us some of the highlights there. It's actually quite common in those sections of leviticus and numbers where the sacrificial system's coming up to to hear of what is to be set aside and given to the priest it's a little less common to actually hear that these things will also be provided to the levites there is a little bit of it but it's just not talked hmm. about as much which is intriguing for for whatever reason that the lord did not share that but what we have here you can go i believe it starts in leviticus 3 so again the sacrifices described in those first six, seven chapters of Leviticus or so. Leviticus 3 says it. Leviticus 6 talks about it. Leviticus 7 talks about it. When these, when the people of Israel are bringing their sacrifices to the house of the Lord and they give them to the priest, the priest is going to take the animal. He's going to sacrifice the animal. And he's, so for example, a burnt offering. He's then going to separate the various pieces of it. He's going to burn part of that animal on the altar is the offering to the Lord. But parts of the animals also have also been set aside by God, declared by the Lord that they are the priests due. So again, the priests can't provide for themselves, and so the Lord is going to use the offerings to do it. So here's a here's an animal. you've You've sacrificed it. The, the blood has been shed and thrown on the altar. The bull has been burned. Now the priest can take this part. Some of it he can eat himself. Some of it the priests eat together. And some of it he can even then consume with his family that they may partake of it and be cared for also. Um, so that's specific to the priest in terms of the the meat of the offerings. But verse 4 gets, gets a, little, uh, a little more generic. A little broader, um, that the the first fruits are going to be given to care also for for the Levites too here. So first fruit, we might talk about that like tithing. So you think of I like to think of Cain and Abel in this way that the the brothers in Genesis four they both decide to bring an offering to the Lord. Abel's offering is of the first of his flock. By giving the firstborn of his flock, Abel is trusting that Yahweh was going to provide more right that that his flock was not just going to be wiped out and that God would not care for him any longer but that God would continue to provide for and care for Abel whereas Cain's offering is not favored by God because it's not first it's not Cain showing that he trusts that God will provide it's it's I don't necessarily want to say the leftovers but in a way it is I mean he took what he needed and then he gives. And so his offering is, in a way, rejected, and he gets angry, kills his brother over all of this. So the people are to give their first fruits from their harvest. So the first fruit of your grain, the first fruit of your wine, the first fruit of your oil. So the the grain and the oil can be used for the the priests, the Levites, to have bread. The wine is used for them to, to drink. And then the first fleece of your sheep, so wool, that they can use to make clothing for themselves, that they can use to make perhaps other fabrics, other things, if you think of maybe a tent or whatever it is that they they also needed to construct. Right. So the Lord provides for his priests.
0: The people give their first fruits, and that's how the Lord takes care of his priests and Levites. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We need to take a short break. We're talking about Deuteronomy chapter 18 with Pastor Steve Andrews. We will be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, September 2nd. We're studying Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 1 to 14 with Pastor Steve Andrews. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lees Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we were left off at verse 5 after the Lord has told his people which particular parts of the animals and certain things that they give to the priests, and Levites as the first fruits, Then the Lord gives the reason. The Lord your God has chosen him, that is the, the priest, out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. Talk a little bit about what that ministry in the name of the Lord is. And then that phrase at the end, for all time, uh, we don't do these things anymore. How does that point us to the fulfillment in Jesus?
1: So the first part, ministering, uh, the word minister service. Uh, they are to serve the Lord on behalf of his people. And this is a special role. We might use the word intercessor or intermediary. They stand between God and men. We see Moses specifically do that um, in in the book of Exodus a couple of times. But the priests are called as a as a group to do this as well. And there's a beauty that's reflected in that In the garments that Aaron is given to wear so you can read about those back in Exodus chapter 28 Um, but in his priestly garment he he's going to have shoulder basically like shoulder pads and and on each shoulder he's got an onyx stone that has been carved it's been engraved to have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and it's said in verse 12 Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for remembrance and then he's, he's wearing a breastplate that covers his chest, and it has 12 stones in total on it, each one representing one of the 12 tribes. And God says, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before Yahweh. And then he's got these two stones, and I don't know that we know anything about what they looked like, um, but there's a, the Urim and the Thummim that were used to cast lots to the the idea that the Lord would guide the rolling of these stones to indicate what he wanted the people to do or or, or how to go, and he would wear these in that breast piece. They would be up against his heart, as we read then from Exodus 28.30, They shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before Yahweh. Thus, Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before Yahweh regularly. And then he wears this turban on his head, and the turban has this golden plate affixed on the front of it, right on his forehead, that says, Holy to Yahweh. And God says of it, It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regularly on his forehead that they may be accepted before Yahweh. So Aaron's garments reflect this beautifully, that his role as priest is to stand between God and men and to intercede on the behalf of sinners. Now, he himself is a sinner. So you get to the idea of the Day of Atonement again, and he has to go in. He's going to sacrifice. He's going to throw the blood on the actual throne of God, the altar. Uh, sorry, the Ark of the Covenant. He's going to throw the blood on it first for himself and then for all people, atoning for them, making atonement for the entire nation. So that's the role of the priest, and that's what God has set them apart to do. And he says here he has done it for all time. And yet, as people look around, we don't do these things today? We don't have, as you mentioned before, necessarily Levites in all of our congregations. We don't have um, the high priest descended from the line of Aaron, and so we can look a couple ways at this. I, I think it's interesting to look at it from the Jewish perspective. Maybe first that the the Jews themselves, when the Roman army came in seventy A.D. into Jerusalem and destroyed it and and leveled the temple, that's what Jesus talked about when they would, he warned, I think it was Matthew 24, that that day was going to come when not one stone would be left upon another. They have not had their sacrificial system in place since because that's where the sacrifices were to be offered to the Lord. Ever since that temple was destroyed, it's been almost 2,000 years without forgiveness for the originally chosen people of God at least without the forgiveness in the way that they knew it. Now, there is, as Christians, we know this in a very different light. We would look to the cross of Jesus Christ. We would look to his death as the the atonement for our sins, as he shed his blood to forgive us and to reconcile us to his Father in heaven. And there's a, a wonderful passage in Hebrews that relates to this, very much so. It's Hebrews chapter nine, starting at verse twenty-two, where the unknown preacher says, Indeed, under the law almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. There he's talking about like the tabernacle and the temple. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we don't have the the Levitical sacrificial system. We don't have the the priest who stands between God and men and makes those sacrifices on our behalf because the price is already paid. Jesus Christ has already atoned for us by his own most precious blood. And then Jesus sets up the church, as you see in Matthew 16, as he talks to Peter, and upon that church, he then gives the office of the keys, that is the the binding and loosing, or the forgiving or withholding uh, of sins. And the local congregation then calls a pastor into that office to take those holy things of God, word and sacrament, and again, as we've said before, make them available to the people of God at all times.
0: So in these first five verses, we've heard particularly about the priests and the way that they are cared for by the Lord through the offerings that are given, the sacrifices. And now in verses six through eight, we have a slightly different situation, though it is still relating to how the people are to care for the Levites now. And it talks about traveling from the town where they live to the place where the Lord will choose. We've heard that language in Deuteronomy before. And and what happens about patrimony, the sale of his patrimony, which is an unusual word and, and one that I don't know that I have ever used before today,
1: Pastor Andrew. So help us into what's happening in verses 6 through 8. Sure. Uh, so we've got the idea of the Levites, and again, their role primarily given by the Lord, is to assist the priests in their duties. They're to guard the temple or the tabernacle, care for the holy things in that way. They are to sing, uh, make praise to the Lord as King David will appoint them to do later on and, and be gatekeepers and things like that. But what if you're not living in Jerusalem? What if you're one of the Levites who's been scattered because they were? Um, we we actually see that that the Levites are they're given cities amongst all the tribes of Israel in the Promised Land. So those Levites, for example, those living up in Naphtali at the northern end of the kingdom, they're not going to make regular trips down to Jerusalem in order to to do the the daily duties. And so their their tasks as Levites then looked a little different. Um, they were. They were spread among the people so that, I guess, functionally, we'd say, they could make sure that that word of God, that the Lord's commandments would be able to be with the people, that they could teach the people about God's word. They could teach them how to live um, in the ways of the Lord. We, we see them do this very specifically later in history in Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, we get that example given, but this seems to be their role. And what this text here is describing then is that it's possible at any point for one of these Levites who lives away from Jerusalem to decide if he desires to leave that style of life behind and instead go down to Jerusalem and become part of the the group, part of the rotation that serves the Lord day in and day out in his house or around his house. And so this is being described in to us to, to show how those would be cared for. They're giving up the role from before. They're going to assist in the holy things. And so that brings us to that that idea in verse 8 that they're going to receive equal portions of the, the various tithes or, or whatever it is that the other Levites have been sharing in. And they get their patrimony on top of it. I admit I looked that word up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one. Yeah. So, I mean, it refers to something inherited from your father. The, the Hebrew phrase, the Hebrew word doesn't use patrimony. It uses the plural of father, um, a plural absolute. But the phrase would essentially be the sale concerning his father's. So you can think of, just to give a hypothetical, let's, let's imagine that we have a, a Levite who settles in the city of Shechem. That's one of the cities of refuge that were given to the Levites. And so he's settled there, he's gained some possession, he's gained some livestock, and as he dies, he passes it on to his son, and then his son grows that some more, and he dies, passes it on to his son. Now that son decides that he wants to go and serve in Jerusalem. So he sells everything that he's inherited from his dad and from his grandfather. And that's money that he gets to keep and that he gets to use to continue to provide for himself and his family, in addition to the fact that he's going to share in the regular offerings of the people. So he will get to partake. He's not to be left out. um, So provide for him. And he happens to have this other resources, other income available to him as well.
0: So we shift from there, from the first eight verses, which deal with the caring for the priests and Levites, now to talking about abominable practices, which may feel like a bit of an abrupt shift. One of the ways that I think we can tie this together, which Professor Harstad mentions in his commentary, is now we're beginning to deal with that third office, the office of prophet. It will come more specifically into view in the next text, starting in verse 15 of this chapter. Here we get perhaps the negative side, what would a false prophet deal with and look like before you get to the true prophet coming in verse 15. But again, as you pointed out, sometimes we have these shifts in a long sermon from Moses dealing with abominable practices. Take us into verse 9. Give us the introduction to, to what Moses begins talking about here.
1: How do your people respond when you abruptly shift in your sermons?
0: I try not to, <laughs> but I don't, I don't. you know, I, I guess I should ask them, or maybe I'll just try it one week and just
1: totally go on a different topic. Uh, so, I like how you pointed out that Harstad's connecting this forward to the the conversation about prophets that comes before the chapter's out. I think we can connect it backwards as well uh, to the the priests and the Levites themselves, Um, this warning against abominations, that abominations, primarily when it comes to the Lord's word here, abominations are related to idolatry. They're related to things that are spiritual in nature, and the priests and the Levites are, are overseeing that. Like, again, like our pastors in a way oversee that sort of thing in our, our society, in our churches, our cultures today. And so these abominations, these false pagan ideas could slip their way, creep their way into the worship life of Israel. They could creep their way into the temple, um, even being led by the priests themselves. And, and we're going to see, unfortunately, those things occur in Israel's history uh, an example of that, 2 Kings 16, as King Ahaz goes and visits in Damascus with the, uh, I think it was Damascus, the Assyrian king, he sees the altar to the Assyrian god that's there and he he's so fixated on it, he makes a, I don't, I don't know if he makes a sketch, but he details it completely for himself. He brings it home and he gives that to his priest, whose name was Uriah, and he has Uriah build that thing in the temple. And so now all of a sudden the worship of Yahweh has been replaced with the worship of this false God. Um, So that's an abomination very specifically, those kinds of things talked about as abominations. And then again, additionally, when we think of the priests and Levites being tasked with teaching God's word to his people and how to guard his commands and how to live his ways and that they should avoid these abominations then this could apply as well to the the whole of the people.
0: Mm, yeah. yeah. The, the thing that, that Ahaz did, was that was a bad move, just to put it mildly. So abominable practices. Yeah, that's that's what we're talking about here. There's a lot listed here, Pastor Andrews. We've got about 10 minutes. Uh, give us a, at least a summary. There, there's a lot of things listed. Some of them, I think, have some overlap. Uh, give us a sketch for what is listed as abominations that no one among you
1: is to be found doing these things. You're right. There's there's a lot of overlap in these words and in these terms, and we could describe them and define them one way in English, and then when we go back to the the Hebrew of the Old Testament, um, we might see some differences even in how those words might come come forth. So I'll, I'll try to look at it from that perspective too here. Essentially, there were roughly seven tribes that lived in the Promised Land before Israel entered, and they had all sorts of of terrible worship practices as they worship these false gods amongst themselves. And the one that's mentioned first before we even get into the, the list of all those other words is the idea of child sacrifice. And there are two Old Testament false gods mentioned by name, Molech and Kamash, um, who we know it was part of that pagan ritual and practice to offer children to them. And so the Lord himself will actually set up his command in Leviticus 18 and 20, saying that his people, Israel, should not do such a thing. It's an abomination. And then later describing Molech and Kamash, God will actually call them both abominations, uh, maybe for this very same reason, but again, uh, that their idols would be enough of a reason. So later on, unfortunately, again, Israel's going to do this. Uh, the valley south of Israel, known as the Valley of the Son of Hanom, is the place where they're going to end up building a altar to Baal, who is the god of one of those tribes, the god of the Canaanites. And there they offer their own children um, as sacrifices to Baal. Jeremiah 32 talks about this. And it becomes such a horrible practice as the Israelites recognize it. It becomes such a horrible thing that they begin to view that place not just as unclean but that old testament uncleanness then becomes the idea of evil and eventually they liken the valley of the son of honom to hell they see it that darkly and and that gets picked up by jesus in the gospels as 11 times he'll use that word um he does, it's not honom anymore when you get to greek it's gehenna in greek but it's if you write them out you can see the similarity um, so it's the same place and it's, a, it's an interesting referent that Jesus picks up on, even though ESV ESV just translates it as hell when they bring that forth. Mm.
0: So that that takes care of the matter of child sacrifices, which, I, you know, that's mentioned throughout the Old Testament as one of the big ones that's abominations. Several of them, and this is where we start to get a little bit of overlap, we've got things like divination, fortune-telling, omens sorcery charmers mediums necromancers maybe help us put these i know there are some distinctions there but help us to see the big picture with these
1: abominations the big picture of these things is they're demonic i really that's it it's the idea that magic in any of its forms here magic is essentially asking satan for power so satan is limited satan does not have the kind of power the lord has and that shows on the last day it showed on the cross but satan does have some power and he's not afraid to lend his power to people if it's going to harden us and if it's going to further harm us and so that's what that's really where magical stuff comes from and all of these are just different forms of that and again Um, With all the overlap, it's hard to say distinctly here, but to cover a few of them quickly, divination is the idea of trying to communicate to the various gods um, that are there divining, right, divine. And so they would use animal body parts to do that, for example. Fortune telling is uh, trying to, again, use that power of evil to be able to tell the future and what's going to happen. That's contrasted with, you know, trusting the Lord for whatever tomorrow will bring. So it's a thing of worry. Um, Hebrew might refer more to witchcraft with that one, but um, interpreting omens or seeking omens, giving omens is again, not putting your eyes on the things of God, but putting your eyes on these other future things. So we're not trusting in prophecies. You mentioned, we're looking at this negatively before we get to positives. We're not trusting in in God's word, his prophets. Um, They're going to ignore those people anyway. And then sorcery is probably the one that we would most clearly recognize in that verse, um, using demonic power to try and shape the world however we're we're trying. Uh, charmer, again, uh, conjuring a spell might be a way to, to think of that word. A medium is one that tries to talk to the dead. King Saul does that. First Samuel chapter 28, he's so afraid of the Philistine army, he tries to have a medium, uh, the witch of Endor, I think she's referred to in the ESV, uh, he tries to have her raise up the spirit of Samuel to give him advice for the battle. Um, necromancer, I think we we think of somebody trying to raise the dead, um, not in a Jesus way of giving true resurrection, but more of a zombie-like resurrection as we would think of it. Um, inquiring of the dead, literally in Hebrew is seeking the dead. So there's a lot of overlap in these things, but they're they're darkness. They're focusing on the things that come not from God but from the devil. Mm. Well, and that that darkness is so great that in
0: verse twelve, Moses even says, "Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord." So that darkness comes into you, and and you are called an abomination.
1: What's the the warning that's attached to doing these abominations? Well, that's pretty simple. All right, so here's these seven tribes living in the promised land now. They've done these abominations. So the Lord has judged them. He's driving them out. He is giving this land now to you. Here it is. It's yours. What do you think is going to happen to you if you do the same abominations of the people that were driven out? You won't get a different outcome, right? It'll be the same yeah. outcome. The Lord will drive you out, which unfortunately, again, because we sin and the people sin, that's exactly what comes to pass as Israel's destroyed, Judah's destroyed, people taken into exile, and the Lord eventually has to show that mercy once more.
0: Hmm. Now, in, in verse 13, the Lord says through Moses, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God, and then continues again saying, hey, this is what the nations that you're about to dispossess do. You shouldn't do that. We've got about three minutes. Take us into these verses. Help us to, to wrap things up this morning.
1: God calls the people, and I think it's fair to say us, God calls us to be blameless. He calls us to be free of blemish, whole, unobjectionable. He calls us to be perfect. As a holy God, he is just and he is right to do so. But thanks be to God that he is also merciful and he knows of our sin, he knows of our failures, and he has sent his son Jesus Christ to be and to do what we failed. So I failed to be perfect, but Jesus was perfect on my behalf. I was called to be holy. I failed, but Jesus was holy. And he's done those things for you. And that's such good news. That's our gospel that we have from the Lord. So 14 just reiterates this whole thing. Um, These nations, they've made these mistakes. God has taken this land from them. He stripped it from them. He's giving it to you. Don't follow them. Right? So when they were looking for guidance on how to live, they turned to these demonic things, fortune tellers and diviners, that would tell them of a, a future and a hope and an end that they would want to hear, but it's not what God would have to give. It's like the false prophets in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah 6, they were saying, peace, peace, but there was no peace. It's like what Paul warns Timothy of in 2 Timothy 4. The time is coming. People will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So this is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, but we rejoice because I mean, we can see it here. Notice God's role in these things. Verse 12, who drove out the, the people of the promised land? The Lord did. The Lord drove out those tribes. Who in verse 14 has not allowed his people to listen to the fortune tellers and diviners? It's the Lord, that he fights for his people, that he safeguards his people, he cares for them, he protects them. We can think of Matthew 16, that the Lord today says that the gates of hell will not overcome his church, or John 10, 28 and 29, that the Lord promises that no one can snatch you from the Father's hand. So even though there is evil, even though we commit evil, there is mercy, there is forgiveness in Christ, and he does care and provide for his people.
0: Pastor Steve Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri, helping us today with Deuteronomy 18, verses 1 to 14. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, although we have sinned in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are clothed with his perfect righteousness. God counts us as blameless and gives us his word that we might walk in it, that we might rejoice in it, that we might receive it from his called ministers whom he sends to proclaim that gospel of peace. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Deuteronomy, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.